0: Hi, this is Kendall Boyson, professional life and recovery coach, and you're listening to Encouragementology, the practice of instilling hope. Hi there. Thanks for joining me. On this show, we're aimed at having a real talk without judgment. Show disclaimer, no matter what your involvement is with drugs or alcohol, you can benefit from the awareness of casual consumption, substance abuse, and addiction. We have all been impacted on some level, either directly or indirectly, and the threat is not going away. Almost 21 million Americans have at least one addiction, yet only 10% of them receive treatment. We can't take our eyes off this problem and sweep it under the rug, hoping it goes away. Taking away access to drugs and alcohol only solves one issue, but not the underlying reason for the abusing in the first place. There is help, and it starts with an awareness and an honest look at your life and those around you. Do you need help, or can you help? Ready to make a commitment to know and do more? I am a woman in recovery. Eight and a half years ago, I started my journey to self-discovery. It started with a hard look in the mirror to address my own issues and need for change versus unsuccessfully trying to change and control everyone around me. If I wanted different, I had to be different. The first thing that had to go was my reliance on alcohol. Some might have seen a casual drinker, always ready to unwind and have a good time, but I was far from casual. I was consistent. I consistently drank more than I should, more often than reasonable. I had a problem. The realization that a change needed to happen came before my revelation and subsequent call to action eight years ago. But like many, I started with negotiation. I will only drink on weekends, only have wine with dinner, only consume when there is a special occasion. Good intentions to limit myself, yes, but not successful. One day I was in a doctor's office waiting room and I saw a magazine article on abstinence versus moderation and how our brains are wired. Whoa, I had an aha moment, and sorry to say, ripped out that article. This made so much sense to me. See, some people can say, I will just cut down, but I could never stop. Let's say eating bread, for instance, where others claim they have no self-control when it comes to eating bread, so it's better if they just never start. That's me. I remembered all the times I tried to moderate and how mentally exhausting that was. Making bargains, paying close attention to the clock, rationalizing my next glass, and of course, ultimately being disappointed in myself. Abstaining or quitting meant that's it no games, no bargains, no disappointment. So, eight and a half years ago, I gave it a try and I succeeded. I couldn't find the exact article I read, even though I'm sure it's tucked into some journal I have. But here is a little more behind that idea. This might be a revelation for you and a way to get us started. Debbie Rose, are you a moderator or an abstainer? Found at MyWardrobeMyself.com. Moderation is based on the idea that if we deny ourselves something altogether, it will result in binging or falling further off the wagon in the future. However, in many instances, it can be easier to resist certain temptations by never giving in to them in the first place. Sometimes we can deprive ourselves completely of something that it's not even an option to us to entertain. We end up feeling less deprived. Another potential benefit of this type of self-denial is that mental energy is conserved because there is no decisions to make regarding whether or not to indulge. Self-control doesn't need to be mustered on a regular and ongoing basis. What Gretchen Rubin, author of Better Than Before, What I Learned About Making and Breaking Bad Habits, discovered in her research is that some people are abstainers and others are moderators. Abstainers fare better when they implement all or nothing habits in their lives, and moderators do better when they indulge themselves moderately. For abstainers, having something makes them want it more. Conversely, for moderators, having something makes them want it less. When abstainers attempt to moderate, they can become exhausted by debating how much they can have, what counts as a transgression, and how often to indulge. For the people who fit into this category, it's easier to say no to something once and be done than to have to continually go back and forth with themselves about what to do. This type of definitive resolve requires little or no mental effort. An abstainer decides one time that something's off-limit, and that's it. The temptation is gone. Moderators, on the contrary, are find that occasional indulgence can increase their pleasure and strengthen their resolve to avoid the temptation the rest of the time. These individuals tend to panic or rebel at the thought of never doing something at all. They do better with their habits when they avoid strict rules and regulations. They often find that keeping treats on hand decreases their impulse to indulge because they realize they can have these things whenever they want and it's not really a big deal. When moderators are told no, even by themselves, they end up wanting the taboo item or behavior even more. Moderators and abstainers are often very judgmental towards each other, as they both believe that their way of approaching temptation is the right way. While it's true that some people are always moderators or always abstainers, many of us can fit into either category depending on what's involved. And the way we approach a particular temptation can shift over time. Some people can be both abstainers and moderators depending on the context. Gretchen Rubin wrote that many people think they're moderators, but they're really abstainers, at least in regards to particular types of behaviors. She wrote that even moderators can benefit from short periods of abstinence, such as when Catholics give up certain temptations for Lent, or when people take digital sabbaticals, during which they abstain from technology. When abstaining is tied to strongly held values, it can be easier to do. This is often the case with faith-related behaviors, such as observing the Sabbath, keeping kosher, or the aforementioned giving up something for Lent. When it comes to shopping, those who care deeply about the ethical and environmental implications of how clothing are made are often better able to buy less and only buy secondhand items or from certain manufacturers. If you don't like giving yourself restrictions or telling yourself no, it can help to reframe the situation as being related to freedom. For example, you can tell yourself you're free from french fries, candy, bread, or whatever it is you're trying to avoid. This creates a totally different perspective than saying you can't have those things. Not sure which you identify with? Why don't you think about all the things that you're trying to avoid or cut back on and see which one resonates with you. For me, abstaining means the pressure's off. For the last three years, I've worked with Women in Recovery. I volunteer on a weekly basis and conduct support groups around empowerment and perspective. It's been some of the most rewarding work I've done to date. For once, my goal is not to fix or control, but to simply encourage. Encourage them to open up and share their experiences with the others in the group. I create the right recipe by offering a loving and judgment-free space where we can laugh, cry, brainstorm, and support each other. I've worked with 18-year-olds who are experiencing their first time in rehab to women in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s who've been incarcerated and completed multiple rounds of rehab only to relapse and start the process again. In a recent study, it was found that 85% of individuals relapse and return to drug use within one year of treatment. Should they relapse, they're more susceptible to overdose for the simple reason that their tolerance isn't what it once was. A dose they may have once used regularly can now be fatal. Some of the women are court-ordered, not fully ready to face a life of sobriety, and others are tired of being tired and are really ready to make a go of it. Many tell me stories about getting lost in addiction because of growing up in a family of addicts or trying to fit into the wrong crowd. Some say it was curiosity, and it only took one time before they couldn't stop. Others talk about getting in an accident and seeking pain management with prescription drugs only to lose complete control. So how do you go from casual consumption to having a substance use disorder? At 12keysrehab.com, I found the strategies of addiction, how casual use evolves into dependence. Addiction is one of the greatest public health concerns facing the United States today. More than 21 million people are addicted to drugs and alcohol and thousands of people die each year due to drug and alcohol related overdoses. In fact, a startling 130 people die each day of opioid overdoses alone, never mind any other addictive substance. But these individuals are typically not those who have just begun using drugs or alcohol. Rather, they tend to be those who have struggled with the disease of addiction and the development of it. Like most diseases, it takes time for addiction to progress, Of course, there are cases when someone loses their life early within their substance abuse or even during a period of experimentation. But it's much more common to see a progression occur over time. When someone experiments with drugs or alcohol, they're not planning on becoming addicts or alcoholics. However, some instances, that's what occurs. That's because experimentation can lead to regular use, which can lead to risky use, dependence, and the eventual development of addiction. So what are the stages of addiction? Each stage of addiction showcases what a person is going through during that stage, but also highlights the potential of what can come next if the use continues. People of all ages abuse drugs and alcohol, but a vast majority of them are first exposed to addictive substances at an early age. That's because the most common age to be introduced to drugs and alcohol is in the teenage years. Number one, initiation. The vast majority of children and adolescents are first exposed to drugs and alcohol at a very early age, especially if there's substance abuse occurring in the home. Typically, however, exposure and initiation are two separate things. Studies show that children and adolescents between the ages of 12 to 14 and 15 to 17 are at the highest risk for initiation of drug and alcohol use. Those same studies also report that those children and adolescents who are initiated into substance abuse at an early age are more likely to become addicted or dependent on drugs and alcohol in adulthood. Basically, the younger the initiation occurs, the more likely the child or adolescent will be to develop a substance use disorder. In 2012, the National Survey on Drug Use and Health reported that out of those adults who use marijuana at age 14 or younger, 13.6% were diagnosed with illicit drug dependence or abuse. This percentage showed that marijuana use this early in life creates a risk potential for future dependence when in adulthood. Because of factors such as curiosity, peer pressure, and the underdevelopment of the prefrontal cortex in the brain, this is the part that helps us with decision-making, children and adolescents this young are more inclined to try drugs and alcohol. Number two, experimentation. Experimentation with drugs and alcohol can begin within childhood and adolescent years as well as in adult years. Regardless of age, experimentation often begins for one reason or another. A person can feel inclined to experiment because they're feeling pressured to do so by their peers, or they're searching for a means to cope with pain, sadness, or other unsatisfactory emotions, or who are looking to achieve a goal, an example being abusing Adderall in an effort to stay awake and study longer. Most people don't think that just trying drugs and alcohol is going to lead to anything more and that they're in control of how to manage their use. Unfortunately, when experimentation turns into regular use, the risks of becoming out of control become more significant. Number three, regular use. Someone who is regularly using drugs or alcohol is incorporating it into their lives in some way or another. One person might regularly use alcohol each day, while another person might regularly use drugs on the weekend. The definition of regular can vary in this way. When regular use of drugs and alcohol is occurring, individuals are likely using to the point where other areas of their lives begin to suffer. There might be interference with their ability to get to work on time due to being hungover, or prevent them from upholding responsibilities at home because of their preoccupation with ensuring the steady flow of their regular use. It's usually during this stage of addiction that minimal consequences like these occur as a result of regular substance abuse. As the use intensifies, the more severe the consequences can become. Number four, problem or risky use. Use becomes problematic when it starts to really impact your everyday life and potentially the lives of others. Examples of risky use would be driving while under the influence, having unsafe sex, and stealing in order to support your use. In these instances especially, you're not only risking your well-being, but also the well-being of others. During this stage, you still might feel as though you can control how much you use— and when, but you may convince yourself that you're wanting to use each and every time you do so that your actions don't seem as permanent or irreversible. This is extremely common and can serve as a catalyst for the development of dependence. Number five, dependence. Dependence refers to being physically unable to stop using drugs or alcohol without experiencing withdrawal symptoms. You don't become dependent to drugs and alcohol overnight. It also doesn't take a long time for dependence to develop depending on which substance you are abusing. There are three steps to developing dependence. Number one, tolerance. Being tolerant of drugs and alcohol means that you need to increase the normal amount that you regularly use in order to achieve the desired effects. This is why most drug and alcohol users end up using way more than they began using in the first place, which also increases their risk for a fatal overdose. Number two, physical dependence. Physical dependence is occurring when you cannot end or limit your drugs or alcohol intake without going into a state of withdrawal. Most addictive substances, even those that are prescribed by professionals, can cause dependence to develop even when taken as prescribed. Number three, psychological dependence. Psychological dependence happens when you feel the intense, uncontrollable need to keep using. You likely feel that you cannot function without using, making it extremely difficult if not impossible for you to quit. While much of the disease of addiction doesn't feel scientific, The process of developing dependence is, you can't have a physical dependence on a drug or alcohol without first being tolerant to it. Likewise, you can't be psychologically dependent without being physically dependent first. Once you've developed a dependence on drugs or alcohol, it's only a matter of time until you reach the final stage of addiction, which is full-blown substance use disorder. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders has 11 different criteria that defined a substance use disorder. Number one, taking drugs or alcohol in greater amounts or for longer than intended. Number two, Wanting to cut back or stop using it altogether, but not being able to. Number three, spending an excessive amount of free time getting, using, or recovering from the use of drugs or alcohol. Number four, experiencing cravings to keep using. Number five, neglecting responsibilities at home, at work, or school because of substance use. Number six, Continuing to use despite when it causes issues in relationships. Number seven, withdrawing from social, occupational or recreational activities because of substance abuse. Number eight, continuing to abuse drugs or alcohol even when it puts you or others in danger. Number nine, continuing to use when you know that you have an issue that can be made worse by your use. Number 10, needing more drugs and alcohol in order to get high. Number 11, developing withdrawal symptoms that can only be remedied by using again. It is imperative to obtain professional treatment at any stage of addiction, but most important when a substance use disorder has formed. That's because this is the final stage of addiction and it often results in overdose, accidents caused by being under the influence or harm to others. The jelly curve is a stage model of addiction that focuses on the progression of the disease of addiction and how cyclical it is, especially when untreated. There are five stages of this model. Stage one, pre-alcoholic. You're drinking or using to feel better about yourself, to manage painful emotions, to forget something, or to avoid anxiety. Stage two, Early alcoholic, you're experiencing blackouts related to drinking or using drugs and are also becoming deceitful and dishonest about your use. During stage two, you're also using to excess as well as thinking about your use to excess. Stage three, middle alcoholic. Your drug or alcohol use is noticeable to those around you and you're beginning to slack on major responsibilities at work home, or school, you experience physical effects related to your use. Stage four, late alcoholic. Your drinking or drug use has taken over all aspects of your life, and you're willing to compromise your well-being to keep using. If you attempt to stop using or drinking, you can experience severe withdrawal symptoms, some of which may be deadly depending on what you're using. Stage five recovery. You're ready to get help, which can include a combination of detox, therapy, and maintenance. Valiant's model is developed by Dr. George Valiant. This model of addiction was initially used to describe the progression of alcoholism. Today, it's used to address addiction as a whole and is broken down into three stages. Stage one, asymptomatic use. You're drinking or using drugs in social settings or other events where it's common to drink. You usually don't have trouble controlling your drinking or drug use, but on occasion, you use more than intended. Stage 2. Abuse. You're drinking or using drugs to help manage problems in your life, such as stress produced by work or a relationship, a mental illness like anxiety or depression, or to manage upsetting emotions surrounding specific life circumstances. At this time, the abuse of drugs or alcohol for these purposes causes negative effects in your life that continues to fuel the substance abuse. Stage three, the dependent person. You've developed an addiction as evidenced by four symptoms. One, tolerance to the drug of choice or alcohol. Two, Presence of withdrawal symptoms when unable to use drugs or alcohol. Three, inability to control substance abuse. Four, significant impairment in life. Doctors Nora Valco, George Cobe, and Thomas McClellan are all addiction researchers who've developed an addiction model that focuses on a distinction between substance use disorders and addiction. They state that addiction is the most severe form of a substance use disorder, rather than it being a term that is interchangeable with substance use disorder. This model is described in three stages. One, binge and intoxication. You binge, drink, or use and become intoxicated due to cravings triggering your use. This is because your brain craves the dopamine release that occurs when you use. Number two, Withdrawal and negative effect. Your brain starts to struggle to experience pleasure or gratification because of your substance abuse, causing a negative effect that makes you more sensitive to withdrawal and other challenging physical or emotional situations. Number three, preoccupation and anticipation. You experience this stage when you are in the thick of a severe substance use disorder and are physically dependent on drugs or alcohol. At this time, you become fixated on everything that goes into your substance abuse. Each model, while different in its approach, helps to provide a general understanding of how addiction doesn't occur overnight. Rather, it develops through a series of stages. Drug and alcohol abuse are not really created equal. No one really thinks of a casual heroin user unwinding after a long day at the office, meeting at a trap house for a little happy hour. But drinking has social and casual acceptance. You bring a bottle of wine as a hostess gift. You have a few drinks with coworkers at the end of a day before heading home. You lay out the money for an open bar at a wedding. Drinking casually is accepted and encouraged. I have to believe that more people than just me were or are concerned with their level of consumption on a weekly basis. Exaggerated levels of stress as justification to unwind daily. Consciously seeking out recreation that involves some level of drinking. Hiding the frequency or level of your consumption from others, even family in your own household. Questioning your own level of reliance on alcohol and your ability to moderate or abstain altogether. So what happens when casual drinking is no longer casually observed? I found this at recoverycentersofamerica.com, social drinking versus a drinking problem. What's the difference? The National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism notes that 85.6% of people in the US ages 18 or older report that they've consumed alcohol at some point in their lives. 69.5% reported they drank alcohol in the past year, and 54.9% reported they drank within the last month. Drinking alcohol is deeply rooted in American culture and history. It's widely available in stores, restaurants, and bars, and it's often used to socialize, relax, celebrate special occasions, and even to maintain health. Drinking an alcoholic beverage doesn't automatically lead to serious trouble, but the ease of access to alcohol and its social acceptability make it important to distinguish between different types of drinking, as well as the symptoms and psychological effects of alcohol misuse. So, what is social drinking? Social drinking occurs in many forms, from small events like birthday parties or meeting for a drink after work, like I mentioned to large-scale events like Oktoberfest or a New Year's celebration party. There is no set amount of alcohol that determines a social drinker, but the CDC characterized alcohol use as moderate drinking if a female consumes one drink per day or a male consumes two drinks per day. This becomes binge drinking if a male consumes five or more drinks or a female drinks four or more drinks during a general two-hour time frame on at least one occasion within a month. Social drinkers typically enjoy alcohol to relax, fit in, and celebrate, but they do so in low risk patterns and on rare occasions. Social drinkers or casual drinkers usually drink for enjoyment. Know when to stop drinking. Don't regularly get intoxicated or black out. Find a sober driver and don't drive under the influence. Problem drinking doesn't mean that a person has a physical dependence or addiction to alcohol, but more so defines the risky or potentially unhealthy behaviors associated with their drinking. People who problem drink may not always need rehabilitation to get their drinking under control, but may benefit from therapy. Problem drinking may occur frequently or infrequently, but typically results in negative experiences or problems in a person's life. Problem drinkers may feel dependent on alcohol and find it difficult to stop drinking even though they may not have a physical dependency on addiction. Problem drinkers may choose to drink to reach a desired state of mind, such as comfortable in a social situation or increased sociability, feeling good about themselves, having a good time, or generally feeling happy, feelings of relief or escape from problems or worries, feelings of importance. Symptoms of problem drinking and signs of alcohol abuse may include missing class or work due to drinking, avoiding social situations, family, and friends to drink alone, episodes of depression, anger, or violence, taking risks that can impact your life or the lives of others, spending too much money and creating financial problems, having unsafe intercourse, Not knowing when to stop drinking, getting drunk, or blacking out. Driving under the influence. Getting arrested due to behavior exhibited while intoxicated. Losing relationships. Problem drinking and alcoholism are similar, but an alcoholic is physically and psychologically addicted to alcohol. Ceasing to drink when addicted to alcohol may result in symptoms of withdrawal, which may include symptoms of anxiety, nausea, insomnia, or abdominal pain in the first 6 to 12 hours. Hallucinations, increased body temperature, confusion, and unusual heart rate 12 to 24 hours after the last drink. Alcohol withdrawal Seizures may occur as soon as two hours after the last drink, but may take up to 24 to 48 hours. Delirium tremens may occur 48 to 72 hours after the last alcoholic drink. Additional complications may include grand mal seizures, heart attacks, and strokes. Other effects of alcohol may include improper liver function and cirrhosis, cancer of the mouth, throat, breast, liver, and esophagus, and a weakened immune system. Alcoholics may appear highly functional and may not fit into any type of stereotype. However, there are ways to recognize the signs of alcoholism in yourself, a loved one, or your adult child. The inability to stop or control alcohol intake after starting to drink. Obsessive thoughts about alcohol. High tolerance of alcohol and the need to drink a large amount to feel the effects. Displaying behavior that is uncharacteristic to their sober personality. Repeating unwanted drinking patterns or the inability to stop drinking even when setting drinking limits. Losing relationships and friendships. Pre-drinking before attending events or parties. A sense of denial that their drinking is a problem because they can still perform or succeed professionally and or personally. Using alcohol as a reward. Living a double life by separating their sober life from their drinking life. Binge drinking and common blackouts. People expressing concern over negative drinking behaviors. Engaging in risky activities or risky behaviors. The inability to imagine life without alcohol. Drinking is on the rise in the US and can be partly contributed to by the 2020 COVID-19 pandemic as well as alcohol misuse by millennials to cope with modern financial stress, depression, and anxiety. There are ways to combat alcoholism. Enrolling in inpatient rehab, outpatient rehab, and telehealth addiction treatment programs to get the necessary support, information, and services needed to detox and quit drinking. Ask for support from friends and family. You may also consider discussing your concerns with your health provider writing out a physical list of the reasons you want to quit drinking. Keep a journal where you track when you're tempted to drink, including where you were and who you are with, so you can start to identify your triggers. Don't keep alcohol in your house, and don't go to places that are problematic to your sobriety. Start a hobby or choose an activity to stay busy instead of drinking. Be persistent. I hope this has helped you understand the impact drug and alcohol abuse has had and continues to have on our society. I also hope that if needed, you've taken these ideas personally and come to terms with your own need for awareness and or change. There is a rich and rewarding life in recovery. My own journey has been transformational. When my mind was clear and I was able to focus all my energy in forward positive momentum, I was able to establish and do some pretty incredible things. I became a certified life and addiction recovery coach. I founded Encouragementology, the practice of instilling hope. I created Women Connect, women helping women find direction, and hold three support groups a week. I created Senior Connect, a common thread community, and hold biweekly senior support group meetings. I produce this show weekly, and as a motivational speaker, I speak any chance I can get. No one contacted me and asked me to do these things. I saw a need and acted. I'm nothing special. You can do this too. If you would like to start a support group in your area, please contact me at kendall at encouragementology.com. Let's wrap it up with 13 benefits of a sober life from Silver Linings. When you choose to become sober, You might worry that your life is going to become boring. You might ask yourself, is my life really going to get better? Am I ever going to be able to have fun again without drinking or using substances? Is getting sober even worth it? The benefits of sobriety far outweigh the downfalls. In fact, living a sober life is the best decision that you can ever make. Although the media may make getting drunk and using drugs seem appealing and fun, The effects of abusing substances are not. Hangovers are not fun. Throwing up is not fun. Embarrassing yourself is not fun. Getting withdrawal symptoms due to drug dependency is far from fun. And suffering from addiction to drugs is insufferable. If you struggle with substance abuse or addiction, living a sober life will improve your life immensely. To help you maintain your sobriety and see the benefits of doing so, Here is a detailed list of reasons why sober life is beneficial. Get ready to live a good life. Number one, benefit of living a sober life. Your overall health will improve. When living a sober life after addiction, your overall health improves immensely. This is because you're no longer attacking your body by putting dangerous amounts of toxic substances in it. Due to the toxicity levels of alcohol and drugs, When you chronically abuse them, your immune system lowers. As a result, you become sick more easily. Therefore, when you stop placing toxic substances in your body, or even relieve your body of the toxic substances that already exist through your detox, your immune system receives a boost. When your immune system improves, your overall health improves. Number two, you'll have more money. Whenever you suffer from addiction, you're willing to spend every last penny that you have on alcohol or drugs. As a result, you end up blowing through your money. Blowing through your own money may even cause you to steal money from those close to you to pay for substances. That's why one benefit of sober life is that you will not spend your money on substances anymore. Therefore, you'll have more ready funds than you did while you were suffering from addiction. Number three you'll get the opportunity to repair broken relationships. When you suffer from addiction, you become selfish, toxic, and difficult to maintain a relationship with. As a result, you've likely broken and lost relationships that you've had in the past with family members and friends while suffering from addiction. One of the many benefits of sobriety is that you'll get a fresh start on repairing these broken relationships. All you need to do is take responsibility for your past wrongs and prove to your family and friends that you're now sober and trustworthy again. This may help you make amends with people you love. As a result, you may be able to rebuild relationships that broke due to addiction. Number four, you'll gain more energy. Taking substances can decrease your energy levels. This is especially the case if you're taking depressants or downers. Abusing substances can also lower your energy due to the fact that substances often rewire the parts of the brain that control your mood. Since your mood affects your energy, the rewiring of your brain can cause you to lose energy as well. Another reason why your energy is often lower while abusing substances than it is while sober is because addiction causes you not to get good sleep. Because you aren't receiving good sleep when suffering from addiction, your body is not getting the proper time and rest that it needs to refuel itself. As a result, you lack energy. This also means that living a sober life will help you gain your energy back. Number five, your appearance will improve. When you're suffering from addiction, your only concern is to get more substances. As a result, you neglect your physical appearance and personal hygiene, therefore, Living a sober life will improve your appearance. Number six, you'll have better memory. When you abuse large amounts of alcohol and drugs, your memory becomes foggy. This is because you're essentially sedating yourself. So you should become sober if you want your memory to improve. Number seven, you'll gain more time. Living a sober life will give you way more time than living with addiction. This is because when you suffer from addiction, you become consumed with getting drugs and alcohol. But when you become sober, you get to have all the time that you would have normally used to obtain substances while suffering from addiction. With all this newfound time, you can change your life for the better. Number 8. You'll Garner Respect Unfortunately, there is a stigma surrounding those with addiction. In fact, many people view those suffering from addiction as being lazy or even crazy. The only true way to avoid the stigma as an addict is to redeem yourself by becoming sober. Once you start living a sober life, people will respect you and your ability to overcome life's obstacles. Number nine, you'll sleep better. When you abuse substances to the point that it rewires your brain and consumes you, you struggle sleeping through the night. Sleep is a vital bodily function. Without it, you can't function at your best. That's why it's so important to get the proper amount of sleep each night. Because of how vital sleep is, one of the key benefits of sobriety is that you get to sleep again. Number 10. When you abuse substances for extended periods of time, it exaggerates any mental health issues that you have. This is especially true since you're likely not taking care of your physical or mental health as it is while suffering from addiction. However. Living a sober life will help improve your physical, and in particular, your mental health. Number 11. It will increase your ability to build long-lasting relationships. When you suffer from addiction, you become so obsessed with obtaining more alcohol and drugs that you stop investing in your relationships with other people. In fact, the selfish behaviors that often come with addiction often break the relationships that you have with others. One of the major benefits of sobriety is that you will regain the patience, time, and ability you need to build long-lasting relationships. Once sober, you can use this ability to make up for lost time and make new friendships. Number 12, self-discovery. Living a sober life after going through addiction gives you a new perspective on life. This is because it allows you to see the world through the new eyes after being clouded by alcohol and drugs for so long. Number 13, a new lease on life. Addiction is a terrible illness that often causes people to die due to overdose or suicide. Therefore, becoming sober after suffering from addiction is no small feat. It's basically as if you have a new lease on life. Many people don't get that opportunity to have such a vital second chance. To ensure that your second chance at life doesn't go to waste, focus on your self-improvement. Okay, here are some key highlights. Not sure I can get through all 10, but number one. If you want different, you have to be different. An abstainer decides one time that something is off limits, and that's it, the temptation is gone. Studies show that children and adolescents between the ages of 12 and 14 and 15 to 17 are at the highest risk for initiations of drug use and alcohol. Once you have developed a dependence on drug and alcohol, It is only a matter of time until you reach the final stage of addiction, which is a full-blown substance use disorder. Problem drinking does not mean that a person has a physical dependence on addiction or alcohol, but it does define the risky and potentially unhealthy behaviors associated with their drinking. Problem drinking may occur frequently or infrequently, but typically results in negative experiences or problems in a person's life. If you struggle with substance abuse or addiction, living a sober life will improve your life immensely. With this newfound information, you can craft a new life for yourself that best fits your personal needs. to share Encouragementology with a friend who needs to know they are not alone in this journey of self-discovery. You can visit Encouragementology.com or anywhere you stream your content to receive this episode and all others. Follow us on Facebook for additional encouragement throughout the week. So I challenge you, seek to understand your role and responsibility in consumption and recovery. Freedom comes without hindrance or restraint, and you have the power to own your life's outcomes moving forward. I know you can do it. Thank you for listening to Encouragementology with Kendall Boyson, where we find positive ways to handle some of life's challenges. someone through until the path was clear, that's when I found you how I wound up here.